Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today we'll be discussing new diagnostic criteria of progressive supranuclear palsy. I'm delighted to be joined by the author of a new paper on the subject, Dr. Adam Boxer. Dr. Boxer, please reintroduce yourself. My name is Adam Boxer. I am a neurologist and professor of neurology at the University of California uh, at San Francisco. So, Dr. Onto progressive supranuclear palsy, what kind of disease is it? Is it, is it easy to diagnose? Progressive supranuclear palsy is a neurodegenerative disease that has uh, in the past been considered to be a form of atypical Parkinsonism because uh, in the classic form that was described approximately 50 years ago, a little bit more than 50 years ago, by Steele, Richardson, and Olchewski, there are uh, primarily movement symptoms. So uh, patients with the classic form of PSP, which we now call Richardson syndrome, uh, in recognition of J.C. Richardson, who was the neurologist in Toronto who first described the patients who had, uh, who had this disorder and came to autopsy in their paper that was published in 1964. Um, we now call that Richardson syndrome, and um, there, that is a very characteristic syndrome where we see a uh, progressive decline in function um, with uh, characteristically early falls and gait instability, as well as a uh, supranuclear gaze uh, abnormality, which begins with a decrease in the velocity or slowing of typically vertical eye movements or saccades, uh, followed by a complete supranuclear gaze palsy. So that's that's the classic form of PSP that people used to refer to as, as the clinical PSP syndrome, but we now recognize that there are other uh, clinical presentations of PSP, uh, which may be a little bit more difficult to be certain of, of the underlying uh, PSP pathology, um, but uh, some also have very... Uh, classic presentations as well. And so does neurodegeneration precede any clinical symptoms? Yes, that is what we believe. So over the past decade, there's been increasing evidence that like in other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, the pathology that is associated with PSP, and this is uh, typically deposits of uh, abnormal, insoluble, hyperphosphorylated tau protein, uh, and this, these are characteristic deposits in uh, both neurons and glia, that these uh, likely precede the onset of symptoms by a number of years. It's not clear how many yet, but uh, there are increasing numbers of patients who have evidence of PSP brain pathology who had no symptoms during life. And so it is assumed that uh, many of these patients uh, likely would go on to develop symptoms if they had lived longer. And this is taken as evidence that PSP pathology likely begins in the brain before people have overt symptoms. So what diagnostic criteria are currently available for neurologists? For uh, many years, uh, there were the uh, National Institutes of Neurological uh, diseases and stroke progressive supranuclear palsy criteria, or the 1996 Litvan criteria that were uh, organized by my colleague Irene Litvan. Uh, these were uh, really focused on the diagnosis of this classic form of PSP called Richardson syndrome, and uh, they are highly accurate 
and recognize uh, different levels of certainty of this uh, Richardson syndrome or uh, clinical diagnosis of PSP, as it was called at the time, uh, called at the time, excuse me. But now, um, since since those criteria were published, it's been recognized that there are other clinical presentations of PSP. For example, there is a presentation called PSP Parkinsonism, where people uh, initially seem to have idiopathic Parkinson's disease, including a uh, response to levodopa therapy, but over time uh, they lose their responsiveness to levodopa therapy and begin to look more like Richardson syndrome with falls, eye movement abnormalities, axial rigidity, and cognitive impairments. Uh, and so uh, this is one of the first what we now call variant presentations of progressive supranuclear palsy that was recognized after the publication of the 1996 criteria. Just this year, really uh, a few weeks ago, uh, new criteria were published uh, for PSP uh, uh, that we were involved in helping to uh, organize. Uh, so this was an international effort that was uh, endorsed by the International Parkinson's and Movement Disorder Society via the uh, uh, Movement Disorder Society uh, PSP Working Group, which uh, is chaired by uh, Günter Hoglener in uh, Munich. And so the new criteria, which were just published in Movement Disorders Journal uh, in 2017, now fully uh, operationalize these variant presentations of PSP, including PSP Parkinsonism, PSP with corticobasal syndrome, which is another movement uh, presentation, as well as other uh, cognitive and behavioral presentations of PSP, including PSP speech language, in which uh, patients really begin with a motor speech disorder that uh, has also been characterized as a non-fluent variant of primary progressive aphasia, or sometimes PSP patients will begin uh, with a clinical syndrome that resembles a uh, behavioral variant, frontotemporal dementia. Uh, and so these uh, types of patients are also recognized in the new criteria which were just published. In addition, uh, another advance that we are very proud of in the new criteria is that they, the criteria recognize that there must be early forms of PSP that when we have better biomarkers uh, available to use for this syndrome, um, we may be more certain in diagnosing forms of which we now call suggestive of PSP. Um, so this means that right now, while we feel quite confident in using these clinical diagnostic criteria and we believe they're quite accurate, for the classic form of PSP, which we now call Richardson syndrome, and uh, when we can diagnose someone as having that uh, classic uh, clinical presentation, we know it's highly predictive of the true uh, underlying PSP pathology involving 4-EP tau, but there are very likely earlier uh, symptoms of, of this disease, and by the time people typically are diagnosed with having Richardson syndrome using the older criteria, they may be four or five years into their illness. Uh, so with the new criteria, we now have a structure by which we hope we can now diagnose people earlier because sometimes they will present with one of these variant presentations, but also we hope that we will be able to use new biomarkers and imaging tools to give us more certainty and to supplement the clinical diagnostic criteria 
so that we could get uh, a more accurate diagnosis earlier in the course of the disease. And this is really important because there are now very exciting new therapies that uh, we're beginning to test in, in uh, PSP patients. One of the real limitations for these therapeutic studies, though, is that uh, we may get to patients too late in the course of disease. Uh, and so the new criteria will hopefully make it easier for us to get uh, uh, patients with clinical disease at much earlier stages when we think that they may be more, more responsive to uh, therapies. And so could you describe for us a little bit the, the most common presentation? What should clinicians be on the lookout for? So the most common presentation or the classic presentation of PSP called Richardson syndrome, really the, the research criteria haven't changed much from the original 1996 criteria. So the first symptom really is gait instability or falls, and typically people will have sort of unexplained falls. Sometimes this is preceded by a cognitive or behavioral syndrome that is often characterized as, as a trouble with executive function or maybe withdrawal or depression, um, but that's often quite nebulous. So, so patients will have some mild behavioral changes, uh, but uh, frequently what comes to the attention of their physician is a fall or a change in gait uh, stability. There, thereafter, frequently uh, in the classic syndrome, people start to have trouble moving their eyes. And so um, sometimes this is noticeable to the patient in the form of double vision or diplopia or sometimes ptosis uh, or trouble um, lifting or opening one's eyes. But over time, there's clearly a decline in the ability to make rapid shifts of gaze or saccades. And classically, this occurs first when looking up or down, but eventually moves to involve eye movements in all directions. So when you see this classic combination of falls or gait instability or severe gait instability with a trouble with making saccades, uh, which uh, typically begins as a slowing of saccades, and, and you can observe this as at the bedside uh, just by having the patient focus on one point such as one's nose and then ask them to move their eyes to look at a hand that's held above or below their face. Uh, so you're looking at rapid movements of gaze. And if you can see the pupils actually moving slowly, so typically when someone makes a normal saccade, you can't uh, actually uh, see the pupil move because it's so fast in terms of angular velocity. But in the case of slowing of saccades, which are really um, one of the core criteria for, for PSP, yeah, and when, you, when the saccades are slowed, you can really, at the bedside, even appreciate that there's this actual perception of movement as if someone is engaging in pursuit movements, but actually it's a saccade. So there's slowing of saccades, uh, which then uh, progresses to a frank gaze palsy where they just can't, where a patient can't move his or her eyes up or down, uh, and there's a limitation in gaze. So these are the two sort of classic features that have been uh, codified in, in both the uh, initial PSP criteria and the new criteria now for Richardson syndrome. Often they're accompanied by axial, more than limb rigidity, bulbar symptoms such as dysphagia, uh, speech changes, and also cognitive symptoms which may be variable but typically are most prominent in the executive function domain and, and frequently patients will notice a slowing of thinking that we call bradyphrenia. Okay, so what sort of biomarkers are available to help differential diagnosis and prognosis? So the biomarkers really that have been best studied are using volumetric MRI. 
um, or just uh, even a, a standard MRI scan, one can notice changes in the volume or diameter of structures that are known to be neuropathologically involved in PSP. And so the structure that people have focused on the most probably is the midbrain. And so either measuring the midbrain diameter on a routine MRI or the midbrain volume on a volumetric MRI and uh, looking at the ratio of, of midbrain volume to pons volume or at structures that, are, that, are, that connect the midbrain to the cerebellum, such as a cer superior cerebellar peduncle, one notices that there is a loss of volume or uh, a shrinkage of this region. And this is really um, characteristic of Richardson syndrome and uh, is quite helpful diagnostically in PSP. So you can look at the uh, width of the superior cerebellar peduncle, the width or the volume of the midbrain, or the ratio of those different of those structures to uh, the pons, and those are all helpful measures. People have often referred to signs that one can see sort of on a, on a clinical MRI scan, such as the hummingbird sign or the Mickey Mouse sign, which sort of reflect this loss of volume in the midbrain. So those are sort of the, the first uh, biomarkers that really have been described and I think really replicated in many different laboratories focused on volumetric MRI. More recently now with more advanced MRI techniques, we're realizing that there may be other uh, types of changes that one can measure in PSP patients. For instance, using diffusion tensor imaging, which is a measurement of white matter integrity, one can also see very characteristic changes in the midbrain, but also in other brain regions, such as the frontal lobes in these patients. And this, uh, these other more advanced MRI techniques may have advantages for uh, sensitivity and also for uh, measuring disease progression in these patients. But even on a routine MRI scan, the volumetric changes are quite apparent. So that's one biomarker. I think there's some very interesting features also of CSF and blood in, in PSP patients that really uh, have only been recognized recently. So although the pathology in the brain and autopsy that's associated with PSP is really uh, primarily an increase of insoluble uh, of an insoluble form of tau called four-repeat tau in specific uh, cell types and brain regions. When one looks at the PSP patients, um, one uh, frequently finds that the the typical tau protein measurements that most neurologists would look at, for instance, in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease are either normal or uh, slightly below uh, normal uh, values, whereas in Alzheimer's disease, uh, usually tau and phosphorylated tau levels are, are elevated. So this has always been sort of a, a, a puzzle. Why should a PSP, which we know is a, a very clearly a, a tau-related disorder, why should the CSF tau levels be normal or slightly low? So more recently, people have been looking at a different protein called neurofilament light chain, which is an intermediate filament protein. And uh, a number of different laboratories have now shown that in the CSF, neurofilament light chain is, is quite elevated in PSP, and the degree of elevation is correlated with clinical and neuroimaging features of disease. 
Um, also, it appears that uh, of the different CSF biomarkers that one can measure longitudinally, that neurofilament is the only one that changes longitudinally. So this was really the first fluid biomarker that we had also to deploy to help with diagnosis and measuring disease progression in PSP. Even more recently, there are new ultra-high sensitivity blood tests on a platform called Samoa that one can now measure neurofilament levels in the blood. And there have been recent publications from groups in Sweden and, and also from our group showing that the blood levels of neurofilament light chain are actually elevated in PSP patients relative to typical Parkinson's uh, patients or idiopathic Parkinson's patients. So this may also be helpful. And we've shown in longitudinal data sets that the amount of uh, neurofilament light chain in the blood is also uh, reflects the progression that a patient will experience over the course of a year. So we now have a fluid biomarker both in CSF and blood, which is neurofilament light chain, that may also uh, be useful in PSP. The, the biomarker that I think people are really most hopeful about, but it's still very early days, is uh, positron emission tomography uh, or molecular imaging of the tau of tau aggregates themselves. So in Alzheimer's disease now, there are a number of PET ligands that can detect Alzheimer's disease uh, tau deposition in these patients. And some of these ligands have now been studied in PSP. Uh, the results are, are still a, a little bit controversial, but there does appear to be the ability to detect uh, tau protein in living PSP patients using uh, tau PET ligand. The sensitivity uh, is likely to be lower for the tau and PSP than for the tau and Alzheimer's disease, which is a challenge. So we still don't know how useful the current ligands will be, but it seems quite possible that as new, uh, better tau PET ligands are developed that are more sensitive to the uh, tau protein in PSP, uh, that this will also be a very useful technique. And uh, since we're really um, hoping to deploy these new biomarkers to help us to diagnose early PSP, where patients will be more likely to respond to a disease-modifying therapy, this is really would be uh, a huge advance for the field because in Alzheimer's disease, what's being done now is uh, people are using different PET ligands and other biomarkers to identify either very early symptomatic patients or really pre-symptomatic patients uh, where, uh, who are then enrolled in clinical trials. And, and that's our goal in the future for PSP as well, although we're still a ways away from that. Well, you've touched on it a little bit there, but just uh, finally, what promising drugs and interventions can we expect in the pipeline, and what, what's the current state of affairs when it comes to treatment? So unfortunately, there are currently no therapies that have really been proven to be efficacious for PSP, despite there having been a number of uh, randomized placebo-controlled trials in the uh, typical PSP syndrome or Richardson syndrome in the past. Some people will benefit transiently, from levodopa therapy, and sometimes people will report symptomatic benefits from things like amantadine. Um, also, uh, patients often experience mood or behavioral changes, and those can be uh, treated symptomatically with, with antidepressants, or um, in rare cases, someone will require an atypical antipsychotic. But none of these really treat the underlying pathology and affect the disease progression, uh, which in most cases will lead to a patient's death. 
we're very excited now that as we understand both the pathology of PSP and genetics of PSP, as well as the biochemistry of a protein called tau, there are a number of new therapies that have entered the clinic and are now advancing through clinical trials for PSP that are really focused on tau protein. Tau is a microtubule, or was initially described as a microtubule binding protein. So microtubules are structures inside neurons that help to create the uh, actual neuronal structure and, and uh, serve as sort of tracks to transport different contents around the cell. And the tau protein, one of its roles is likely to regulate the stability of microtubules and in disease, it appears that the tau protein becomes chemically modified and may actually alter its conformation, causing it to uh, fall off the microtubule and aggregate. Some of the first classes of drugs that were really focused on tau protein and have been tested in PSP uh, were actually trying to make up for this uh, falling off of the tau protein off of the microtubules, and that was called loss of function of tau. Those initial drugs uh, did not show much promise, but um, there's even more evidence now that it's really the aggregation of the tau, or what we call gain of function, that, that may be more of a problem in PSP and in, all, in, in other neurodegenerative diseases as well that are associated with tau. And so uh, another class of drugs has really, uh, or other types of drugs, have been focused on affecting the chemical modifications of the tau protein that make it more likely to aggregate. For example, the tau protein is phosphorylated by enzymes called kinases, and there was a trial that was completed a few years ago of a specific kinase inhibitor for PSP. Uh, this also uh, was a negative trial. Now we're testing a drug called called salsalate, which is a, a very old drug, um, but has actually been shown to affect the acetylation of tau, which is another type of chemical modification of tau. Uh, and so it may be that uh, by altering the chemical modifications of tau, this may lead them to be less likely to aggregate and then less likely to cause problems in the brain. I think what's probably most exciting and what's advanced uh, the most quickly through the clinic are monoclonal antibodies that are targeting the tau protein. So one recent advance also in thinking about neurodegenerative diseases is the idea that different proteins can assume uh, pathogenic three-dimensional conformations that may actually uh, template more pathogenic protein in a fashion that was sort of initially described for Coitfeld-Jakob disease uh, and named prions. Uh, and this is uh, what uh, Stan Kruzner won the Nobel Prize for a number of years ago for prion disease. But more recently, it's been recognized that other proteins may do this as well, although maybe less avidly than prions, and tau is one of them. And so a very popular hypothesis now is that in PSP and other tauopathies, when the tau comes off the microtubule and begins to aggregate, it may assume a, a certain conformation that can spread from one cell to another through uh, maybe transsynaptically or across the interstitial fluid. And when it does this, it becomes accessible or potentially able to bind to monoclonal antibodies that could prevent this spread. And so there are now two monoclonal antibodies to tau that are in phase two studies. Uh, one of these phase two studies 
uh, will actually be a pivotal study. So if we see clear evidence that this slows disease progression, this uh, one of the tau monoclonal antibodies could actually be the first disease-modifying therapy approved for PSP. So it's really an exciting time. There are many, there are a variety of monoclonal antibodies that have bind to different parts of the tau protein or different conformations that that are now available to test as well as a a number of other small molecules that can affect the chemistry of tau. And then finally, uh, another class of molecules that people are very excited about are molecules called antisense oligonucleotides, which actually bind to the messenger RNA for tau and cause it to be degraded, and this actually blocks the expression of tau. uh, And in animals, seems to be a very, very effective way to reduce tau levels and uh, prevent pathology. So uh, these will also be coming into the clinic, we think, in the next year or two. Well, so some real hope for the future then. Well, Dr. Boxer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening.